2 Kings chapter 12, looking tonight at the subject matter, shallow faith. Shallow faith. And I think it will be clear to you in just a few moments why I have titled it that. Shallow faith. 2 Kings 12. Uh, keep in mind, too, if you'll jump over to Chronicles in your own reading, and uh, I think it's long about chapter 24, maybe, in 2 Chronicles. If you read uh, in that section and compare it with what's going on here, uh, 2 Chronicles will help fill in some, some more details, especially as we get toward the end of chapter 12 tonight. Uh, I would encourage you, though, to read the parallel passages in 2 Chronicles. Okay? In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Joash said to the priest, collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord. The money collected in the, in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple, let every priest receive the money from one of the treasurers then use it to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. But by the 23rd year of King Joash, the priest still had not repaired the temple. Therefore, King Joash summoned Jehoiada, the priest, and the other priest, and asked them, Why aren't you repairing the damage done to the temple? Take no more money from your treasurers, but hand it over for repairing the temple. The priest agreed that they would not collect any more money from the people and that they would not repair the temple themselves. Jehoiada, the priest, took a chest and bored a hole in its lid. He placed it beside the altar on the right side as one enters the temple of the Lord. The priest who guarded the entrance put into the chest all the money that was brought to the temple of the Lord. Whenever they saw that there was a large amount of money in the chest, the royal secretary and the high priest came, counted the money that had been brought into the temple of the Lord, and put it into bags. When the amount had been determined, they gave the money to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. With it, they paid those who worked on the temple of the Lord, the carpenters and builders, the masons and stonecutters, they purchased timber and blocks of dressed stone for the repair of the temple of the Lord and met all the other expenses of restoring the temple. The money brought into the temple was not spent for making silver basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, or any other articles of gold or silver for the temple of the Lord. It was paid to the workers who used it to repair the temple. They did not require an accounting from those to whom they gave the money to pay the workers because they acted with complete honesty. The money from the guilt offerings and sin offerings was not brought into the temple of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. About this time, Hazael, king of Aram, went up and attacked Gath and captured it. Then he turned to attack Jerusalem. But Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred objects dedicated by his predecessors, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace. And he sent them to Hazael, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. As for the other events in the reign of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? His officials conspired against him and assassinated him at Beth Milo on the road down to Selah. The officials who murdered him were Jehoshaphat, son of 
Shimei and Jehoshaphat's son of Shomer. He died and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. And Amaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. Folks, I think about the parable of the soils. It's not been too many weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings that we talked about the parable of the soils. Remember the different type of soil that the seed fell into. There was the hard path, and that seed could not penetrate whatsoever. And then there was the shallow soil. And uh, it sprang up quickly, but wasn't able to develop any kind of root system. And so when the sun came out and the soil got hot, it withered very quickly. Other seed was that sown on soil that had lots of weeds and thorns, and those weeds and thorns grew up and choked out the seed, and it did not produce fruit. The last kind of soil, however, was good soil, and it produced a crop. You know, when you look at that second soil, though, that shallow soil, what, what stands out to you about that? And what did, what did Jesus say about that shallow soil? How did he describe it and the crop that came up? Does anybody remember? There was no depth. And he said, this describes those who fall away whenever hardship or persecution because of the word happens. They don't have any root in and of themselves, right? Uh, certainly, that's a problem that I see tonight when we continue to look at Joash. Now, last week, we began looking at the reign of Joash. He'll also be referred to as uh, Jehoash. He reigned for 40 years. He was one of the longest reigning kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. Now keep in mind what we learned of him last week. He had a wicked grandmother who killed all of her grandsons, all of the rivals to the throne, and she took control. She neglected the house of God. She even took things out of the house of the Lord to take them and use them in the temple of Baal. And that probably is one reason we read here that the temple of the Lord was in disrepair. Because she had raided the temple of the Lord to take some of the things to the temple of, of Baal. Now you remember about Jehoiada, the high priest. He and his wife kidnapped Joash, when he was just a year old, they hid him away for six years in the temple, and then they presented him as king when he was only seven years old. And they killed off the wicked grandmother. The Bible says that after Joash was presented as the king, the people celebrated, and the land had peace. What a testimony of how good leaders can bring blessing uh, to the people of the land, while bad leaders can bring curses and keep things stirred up. Well, what we're going to see tonight, though, is we need to have a vital faith regardless of who is watching, regardless of, of who is watching. And what I'm getting at tonight is we're going to see that even though Joash is described as having a good reign for the most part, and he obeyed the Lord for the most part, what was it that was so tragic about his obedience? He only obeyed as long as Jehoiada, the priest, was alive and influenced him. Again, Jehoiada the high priest and his wife is the one who had kidnapped, a good kidnapping of Joash, because Joash's grandmother would have killed him. So they kidnapped him to spare his life. You remember why? Because he was the last remaining heir to the Davidic throne. 
And they were protecting him because God had promised that through the Davidic line, the Messiah would come. And so it's a great thing that Jehoiada and his wife do in kidnapping Joash, hiding him away to protect him from his grandmother who would have killed him. And Jehoiada became an advisor. The high priest Jehoiada became an advisor to Joash. After all, Joash was very young. He was a child when he started reigning, only seven years of age. He needed guidance. And Jehoiada, the high priest, was his mentor who guided him. And as long as Jehoiada was in the picture guiding Joash, Joash obeyed the Lord. But we're going to see what happened to him as soon as Jehoiada was gone. So we're going to see how Joash had a very shallow faith, a very inadequate faith. It's like he's obeying as long as Jehoiada is there watching well, the first thing I want you to see with me tonight is an opening appraisal. An opening appraisal. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother's name was Zibia. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All the years, Jehoiada the priest instructed him. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. The writer is sort of giving us a snapshot summary as this chapter begins. He's just kind of giving an opening appraisal of how things stand at this point in the southern kingdom. And right away, what we're given a glimpse of is a report card on Joash. You remember getting, the re getting your report cards in school and having to take it home for your parents to sign? You remember that? Did anybody ever try to hide their report card? You did? <laughs> that wasn't me. <laughs> no, Cheryl's real quick saying, what? We sort of get an initial report card on him. And think about this report card on him. It's open for all the world to see. I mean, thousands of years later, here we are right, uh, reading about his report card that he obeyed. He did good as long as Jehoiada was there alive. That's sort of his report card. And so what are we told here? We're told about a man who greatly influenced Joash. Uh, to me, that's a loaded statement. I don't know if it is to you or not. That is a loaded statement to me. It suggests a couple of things. I think it implies an inherent weakness in Joash. I do. He does well as long as the high priest is hovering over him and advising him and probably watching his every move. Lacks self-discipline of his own. Yes. Lacks self-discipline of his own. And any parent or grandparent in here can tell you, grandparents are thinking of when you were raising your kids, you want your kids to do right even when nobody is watching, right? Even if nobody's watching you still want them doing the right thing. You don't want them doing the right thing just because they're being watched. You know, I think that, that makes me think of uh, a year I had in, in school in Charlotte growing up. I was grew up primarily in the Cotswold area and was bused all the way across town, fifth and sixth grade. In sixth grade, I went to Amy James, and uh, probably the worst year of school that I had as far as instruction. We were in one of these mobile units out from, away from the main building, and the guy that was our teacher, uh, 
fairly tall man, looked like he was in great shape. And I'm convinced, he, as I think back to him, he must have been a pimp on the side. I, oh, I'm serious. I mean, the guy wore, it looked like $2,500 suits and shoes that, no telling how much he paid on his wardrobe, and he drove this long Lincoln Continental, and it was this bright, gold-plated Lincoln Continental with big, fat, white walls and all that on it. Real gaudy. Uh, but anyway, he would come in in the morning and give the class our assignments. He would leave. He'd leave the room. He's gone. And right before lunch, he'd come in to check in on the class, take us to lunch. We'd come back from lunch. He'd give assignments for the afternoon. He was gone again. And then he came back in time for us to leave and go home. Where he went, I don't know. Like I say, if you could see the, the style car he had and the way he dressed, I really wonder if he wasn't a pimp. Because the school was in a terrible area of town. But anyway, I remember these guys in, uh, in class. Tony, and uh, Tony was a long-haired hippie boy, kind of an old country boy, big old stout dude, big, big, big dude. And Norman, Norman was this uh, young African-American gentleman in our, in our class. And, and Tony and Norman, they were kind of like the big, I, I mean, they were, they were big dudes and nobody else was going to mess with them. And I guess they were jealous of one another who's going to be the king of the hill. So they were always fighting while the teacher was gone. Well, the teacher would come back in. When he would come back into the classroom, uh, they all of a sudden straightened up because that man had a big old paddle. And them big old boys, he'd make them in front of the class. He would paddle them to the point those boys would cry in front of the class. I mean, that's how, I mean, this guy, why? With this big old paddle. But as long as this guy was in the classroom, those bullies, you know, they'd behave. But the minute eyes were off of them, man, it was chaos in the classroom. It all depended on who was watching. I'm not suggesting Joe Ash was that bad. I'm not even going close to that. But you do wish Joe Ash would have had a little more character in his own life. A little more fortitude, a little more depth and root in his own life. That's, that's one thing I notice about this statement. Uh, second thing I notice about these first three verses is the power of influence on, on the good side. Jehoiada has tremendous influence. And he invests his life in this young king. He no doubt wants to see Joash succeed. He wants to see Joash become a godly king and lead the nation in a godly manner. I think of what Jesus said about us. That we're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Folks, as Christians, we, you and I are to have influence. It's to be a positive influence. And as Christians, especially older Christians, the Bible says we're to be investing in those younger. We're to be mentoring them and helping them. I mean, Jehoiada is a wonderful example of how you and I are to be. Taking this young king under his arm and helping him along. That's the type of man that Jehoiada was as a high priest. You know, any group of people is blessed to have a Jehoiada. Uh, Next, I want you to notice the pesky little sins that remain. Now, we're not moving on to point number two yet. still under point number one. But what do you notice about the pesky little sins that remain in the land? There in verse three. The high places were still not removed. Isn't that sad? It's the same verdict we read over and over again 
about even the good kings, the good kings in Judah. It would be described that they had a good reign. A pop, the Lord looked at their reign in a positive way. And, the, and we get a positive accounting of their reign. But so oftentimes we read this statement, don't we? But the high places were not removed. There was idolatry that was still remaining in the land. That's a hard sin to root out. Idolatry. Wasn't uh, some of the people know that uh, worshiping uh, and eating the Lord sacrificing in those places might get into the fact that they both go to the temple? Yeah. You know, and even that. I sure. Mean, the Lord tells you to go to the temple. Sure. They got to go to the temple. Right. You don't substitute another place. Exactly. And, and you read these accounts, though, of the good kings like Joash, and yet the high places remain. And, it, and it's a case, it's a situation of what I call almost obedient. <laughs> it reminds me of Saul in 1 Samuel 15. We've talked about Saul in here before, even 1 Samuel 15. It wasn't too long ago. Remember, God told Saul to go and destroy all of the Amalekites, wipe them all out. Everything about the Amalekites, even their livestock, wipe everything out. God's purpose was to utterly wipe the Amalekites off of the face of the earth because of the way they had treated Israel when God was leading them uh, out of Egypt. And, and you remember what happened. What, what happened in 1 Samuel 15? Does anybody remember? What's this bleeding I hear in my own? Saul said, I did exactly what the Lord told me. Exactly. Saul, uh, Samuel comes up to greet Saul after the battle with the Amalekites. And, you know, Saul's feeling all good about himself and telling Samuel, the prophet, who was also a, a judge, telling him, I have obeyed the Lord my God fully. I've been and Samuel says then what's this bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears and Saul says all the people you know the people wanted to keep the best of the Amalekites livestock so we could sacrifice those to the Lord and what did Samuel say he says, better to obey than sacrifice. And what did Solomon's daddy say? David, I will not offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. Exactly. Yep. But, you know, here again, that was a case of almost obedience. Almost. But do you remember what, what happened to Saul? God determined from that point on to do what? To rip the kingdom away from Saul. Saul just couldn't be trusted. Almost obedience. You think we might have that problem today many times? Almost obedient. I see a little element of convenient worship. When it's convenient to us, right? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, that's what happened in uh, Israel when they set up the other two places to worship. Yes. You know, it was they wanted convenience. Good analogy on that, yes. You know, if you're offering sacrifices, even if you're to the Lord on the high places, uh -huh. uh, you know, that's still disobedience of the not Jerusalem. Yeah. Now, don't answer this question tonight. <laughs> but think about your own life. Think about your own heart. Is yours a case? Is your life a case of almost obedient? Almost? Folks, what could God do with complete obedience? Well, the second thing I want you to see with me tonight is an insightful challenge. 
Joash said to the priest, there in verse 4, collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord, the money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple. Let every priest receive the money from one of the treasures, then use it to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. But by the 23rd year, King Joash, the priest, still had not repaired the temple. Therefore, King Joash summoned Jehoiada, the priest, and the other priests, and asked them, well, why aren't you repairing the temple, uh, the damage done to the temple? Take no more money from your treasures, but hand it over for repairing the temple. The priests agreed that they would not collect any more money from the people and that they would not repair the temple themselves. Beginning here in verse 4, we see the record of probably the greatest Achievement, the greatest accomplishment that Joash seems to have made over his 40-year reign. What's he do here? He leads in a campaign to repair and renovate the temple. And he leads out in the reorganization of the temple finances. Now, keep in mind, by this time, the temple is some 150 years old. So, as you can imagine, after 150 years, it's probably showing signs of, of age. And on top of that, we were previously told that Joash's grandmother, you know, had taken a lot of things out of the temple and carried to the temple bell. And, and so, it's an old building that's kind of been raided. It needs some renovations. Why did it take 23 years, though? Good question. And where was Jehovah? Yeah. Exactly. Apathy. But, you know, uh, has anybody in here ever owned an old house? Just a really old house? I know y'all have. I remember remember a lady in my former church had an old house over in the historic district of Gastonia where 321 goes through Gastonia the old historic area beautiful homes she told me one time she said you don't own an old house it owns you and y'all can testify to that y'all probably laying in your bed at night your old home up on Union and Concord those big historic homes Y'all were laying in bed one night. Things came crashing down while you were in bed, didn't they? But uh, anyway, so the temple's old. It needs some renovation. Now, what is surprising about this is Joash instead of Jehoiada. You would expect Jehoiada to be the one leading out in this. But good for Joash. He's leading out in this. He's doing something now the priests were supported from the monies that came into the temple evidently they they cared more about their wages than the upkeep of God's house now I want you to remember in ancient times the temple was seen as the place where God dwelt and met with his people even the pagans who worship false gods and idols they had temples to their false gods. They believed that's where they met with their God. But certainly in Israel, this the temple of the Lord, that's where God met with his people in the tabernacle first. And then when they finally settled in the promised land, the, the temple that was built. God deserved a temple in proper order. It was his dwelling place. Now, in the New Testament, who's the temple? We are. Think about your life. Doesn't God deserve a clean and organized life? Doesn't the Bible speak a lot in the New Testament about Christians putting off that which would defile us and putting on that which is pleasing to the Lord? God deserves the proper kind of dwelling place. 
Well, Joash sets up a plan that the priests are going to take some of the income coming in and start the repairs. But again, I want you to note, as you saw in verse 6, by the 23rd year, the repairs are still not being done. I mean, it's hard to believe this kind of just apathy and complacency. It just kind of shows you the condition of the human heart, right? Oftentimes, what will we do? We'll, we'll make sure all our needs are met and we're taking care of what we want to be taken care of and we'll neglect things of the Lord, right? We'll just kind of let things just click along and do what we have to do to look after ourselves and our families and we'll so oftentimes neglect what the Lord doesn't want us to neglect. And that was, that was the problem oftentimes in the Old Testament. You know, Haggai and Zechariah, when they came back from exile, Haggai and Zechariah had to get on to them because, you know, they had restored their homes and their businesses, but the temple still lay in ruins. In Malachi's day, the last prophet in the Old Testament, you know, here again they were neglecting the house of the Lord and the things of the Lord, and God said to them, bring the whole tithe into the into the storehouse. Test me in this. Folks, we are to give to God's work what we should give. I'll never forget a man from one of my former churches. I won't tell you who. He told me one time, I, I didn't ask this. He just kind of, I guess it was a guilty conscience. I guess he was convicted. But he was, a, he was seen as a leader in the church. But he said, Pastor, I, my wife and I, we, we just don't have anything to support the church right now like we know we should. But they had bought a 10-acre track of land, built their dream home on it. They had a lake house at a lake that was in our county. They had just bought a new, I guess what would have been at the time, an expensive SUV. They had all their toys and all. And he said, we just can't afford to support the church right now. I guess not. <laughs> I guess not. You know, priorities. Well, to some degree, that's how these priests must have been. And Joash, the king, has to call on the carpet for it. Again, good for Joash. He's the leader, the, the king in the land, and he's calling the priest on the carpet. They agreed. He was right. There was no doubt that they needed to repair the temple. But again, they didn't start the repairs. I mean, disobedience. They're, they must be lazy. They must be procrastinators or something. There's definitely a problem. Well, in answer to that, I want you to see thirdly, a creative fundraising campaign in verses 9 to 16. Beginning in verse 9, you see Jehoiada step in with a backup plan. Uh, Jehoiada, he uh, sets up a special chest to be placed beside the altar and everything collected in this chest was to go for the special building fund for the temple. Have you ever been a part of a church before that had a building project going on or renovating the church campus in some way? And they, and they called it the chest of Joash. Have you ever heard that? It's, it's a very popular thing. The chest of Joash where monies will be given into a chest and collected from time to time out of that and accounted for, and everything put into the chest of Joash goes strictly for whether it's a new sanctuary being built or a family life center or maybe a current a church building being renovated. It's a very popular, well-known kind of program raising money for bills, the chest of Joash. Churches today uh, do that. Uh, 
And I want you to notice a good thing here. Everything that they put in, everything that they challenged the people to give and the people who gave, the money was given. It was dedicated exclusively to what they said it would be used for. And they didn't take any of the money out and do anything inappropriate with it. And that, that's a key to fundraising, right? Use the money for what you say you're going to use it for. And if you say you're going to use 100% of it for that, use 100% of it for that. Well, they would fill it up. There was good accountability for what came in. And then they would turn around and give it to the money who would give to the craftsmen tell them to get going. And I want you to notice they didn't even have to ask for an accounting of it because when they would give the money out of the chest of Joash to the men who were in charge of the craftsmen, Everybody involved in this was so honest. There was no need to even account for the money. The integrity and the honesty of how this was done. By the way, on a side note, let me say a bit about our finances. Visitors to our church, and I, I hear this, well, I won't say all the time, but I do hear it pretty frequently. Honestly, fairly frequently. I've even heard it recently people visiting our church. They're blown away. They're saying, we've never been in a church like We never even knew how the money was used. We never knew how it was spent. We never saw anything. And you know, hence, y'all have an annual budget that's adopted by the congregation, and then in your lobby every single month, there's an update. All the finances of the church are on a financial report every single month in the lobby of the church. And they're like, Pastor, we've never seen anything like this. This is wonderful. Quite frankly, I don't know any other way to do it than that. You know? Anyway, they didn't even have to do an accounting here, though, because uh, finally everybody is taking this seriously and doing it right. But I want you to see, fourthly, a disgraceful ending from verses 17 down to uh, the end of the chapter. And this is where, too, if you'll go, go over to Second Chronicles tonight and read about Joash there, we'll fill in some of the gaps. Remember that Syria, another name for Syria was what? Aram, A-R-A-M. And as I've told you before, don't confuse Syria, which is being referred to here, with Assyria. Assyria was more to the east, like where Iraq and Iran would be today. Syria bordered Israel to the north, just like today. And they were always one of Israel's most pesky neighbors. And they still are. Well, verse 17 tells us that Hazael, the king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. Gath was one of the major Philistine cities along the coast to the west of Israel and Judah. And so Hazael has evidently cut across Israel to some degree, defeated a uh, Philistine area along the Mediterranean, then turned back eastward to take Jerusalem. Notice what jo, uh, Joash does in verse 18. Look at what he does there. He takes the temple treasures and pays off Hazel so Hazel will go away and leave him alone. Again, read 2 Chronicles. We, we learn from 2 Chronicles that Jehoiada, the high priest, has died by now. And the nation thought so highly of Jehoiada that they actually bury him in the tomb of the kings. They bury Jehoiada, the tomb of the kings. When Hazel attacks... Uh, sometime around this event or during this event, Joash is injured in, in, the, in the battle, in the conflict. And Joash, again, pays off Hazel to go away. Hazel leaves, just as 2 Kings 12 points out. Jehoiada, 
His son, Zechariah, is now a prophet. Zechariah is sent by God to condemn what Joash has done and to rebuke Joash. Now, you would think that Joash would have respected Zechariah. After all, Zechariah is now God's man. Zechariah is the son of Jehoiada who's advised Joash all these years. Uh, Jehoiada has been so faithful, you would think he would, he would listen to Zechariah. But what does he do to Zechariah? Second Chronicles tells us he had Zechariah put to death. The case of a prophet going to a king, telling him, rebuking him for what the king's done... Instead of repenting and listening to the prophet, the king kills the prophet. That's what Joash does to Zechariah. Well, Joash's servants are so outraged by this, they rise up and conspire together. They end up killing the king, Joash. They bury him in the city of David, but according to 2 Chronicles 24-25, they did not bury Joash in the royal tombs. So Jehoiada, the high priest, died and was buried among the kings, and Joash, the king, died, and he's not buried among the kings. Irony, right? So the boy king, who started out with such a bang, ends on a bust. Think of that tragic legacy. Seems to me like he lost a lot of respect for his mentor who treated his son that way. Too. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, you education. Exactly. And all that. Mm-hmm. Off. Yeah. I don't think his heart became hardened more and more and more to reach that point. Yep. Which is a dangerous spiral dame, isn't it? By way of contrast, though, I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4. What's he say? As he's passing the baton off to Timothy. What's Paul say? I fall. I have fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I have finished my course or my race. I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my race. Jehoiada couldn't say that at all. He started well, finished poorly. What's this say about the potential for your legacy and my legacy? Folks, you've got to guard your heart and life, don't you? You might be walking obediently with the Lord right now, doing everything He asks you to do, serving Him, being obedient. But you've got to guard your heart. Because if you don't, you may not finish well. So as we look at Joash, think about our legacy. A good beginning is not a guarantee of a good ending. And it's Joash's ending that we remember. Such potential. Such a good king. A long reign. And then it ends so poorly. Lessons? Each person has to develop their own faith. They can't just be faithful when their mentor is alive and watching Each person has to develop their own faith. They can't just be faithful when their mentor is alive and watching. You know, it's sad in a way that we tend to think of salvation as only a past tense event. And 
we were born again, we were regenerated or saved at a point in the past. But salvation involves sanctification. Sanctification. A life of growth in the things of the Lord. One of these days there'll be glorification when we're with the Lord and we're saved from the presence of sin. Oftentimes, though, you hear testimonies and people just think about past. Oh, yeah, I remember back when I was 10 years old. I was 7 years old. I was 15 years old. Well, what are you doing to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord? No wonder 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter, closes by telling us to keep growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. A second lesson, as examples to others, we can have tremendous influence. As examples to others, we can have tremendous influence. But I think that one depends on number one, being in place, right? Developing your own faith, continuing to grow. If that's the case, you have tremendous influence. Number three, an almost obedience lifestyle isn't enough. God doesn't just ask for almost obedience. Number four, a good start does not guarantee a faithful ending. A good start does not guarantee a faithful ending. And number five, the work of God is worthy of our committed giving and diligence. The work of God is worthy of our committed giving and diligence. Any insights you want to add before we close? I think there was a lot of thinking about what he was giving away. No. He was talking about these were sacred gifts to gifts of previous kings. Their yeah. heritage, basically. Yeah, he's giving away their heritage. And in history. Oh, sacred gifts. And he's a treasure to the house of the Lord. So this is the Lord's. Uh, he's given the heat. Yes. Out of expediency. <clears throat> so Hazel will leave him alone. Well, and it testifies to his lack of faith in this God who was serving for all these years. Yep. Supposedly, supposedly at the you know, at the emperor's leadership. But it just like you said, the soil is not that there. One thing I found very interesting, when you read in Chronicles, Jehoiada was 130 years old when he died. Now do that math. Seven years old when Joash came, mm-hmm. reigned for 40. Mm-hmm. That means he was 83 when he took over that little boy. Yep. And then if you keep subtracting the years, he was a priest back to Asa. And God blessed him so much. 130 years in that time period was a really long time. I mean, what Solomon and David were like in their 60s, I think. They were 70 when he died. 70, yeah. yeah. Well, Jehoiada was 130. And then he was honored by being buried in the that means so much because he was so faithful. Absolutely. It would seem like that he too would have been not just a um, mentor, but a father figure. I mean, his father had been killed by the Yeah. Yeah. I mean, good point. Um, A father figure too. Yeah. And the contrast between Zechariah and him, 
being raised by the same man. Yeah. And, you know, uh, mother, too. Yeah. You know, it's a little impact on one that's so much on the other. Exactly. What is it? I can't. Y'all must be back here talking about report cards, yes. making confessions on report cards. The number uh, three was what kind of a fund? It says a creative fund. Oh, you're back in the main points, not the yes. letter. Yes. Yeah, a creative fundraising campaign. A creative fundraising campaign. I thought you were looking for number three, back almost obedience. I probably was misbehaving at that time. You probably were. <laughs> when you talk about report cards, I get a kick out of sleep. I've looked at my old report cards I had, and when I was in grade school, I did great in all the subjects, and when it came to deportment, I got a C. <laughs> and you're talking too much, but I can't remember what you said a different way. You know, and things like that. I got C's and had all A's on everything else. But my mother <laughs> always had a sermon for me. <laughs> Each person has to develop their own faith. They they can't just be faithful when their mentor is alive and watching. We better go to the Lord in prayer, but Richard. Instead of paying uh, off the, the king of Syria, mm -hmm. um, you should have listened to the prophet. What would the prophet have said? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's like he, he just really yeah. didn't have a heart to to seek out what the Lord's will yeah. and all this would have been anymore. <clears throat> Sad. I, I, as you pointed out, I think it was you, just through the years you can almost envision a hardening heart in Joash. Yeah. But where by the end of his life he's not even seeking the Lord or listening to godly counsel anymore. Well, even when he was being obedient, though, he's not asking the question, where is this wisdom coming from? Yeah. You're not sure? What's the, what's the basis of your decision? How did you reach this conclusion, Dad? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And Pastor, we have to remember we develop our faith by Bible study. Amen. And tomorrow morning, our ladies' Bible study is starting at 10 o'clock. Yeah, how does God speak to us today? Through His Word. Opening up your Bible and reading. Exactly.